What's up, y'all? This is Ramel Watley, and welcome to Truck and Hustle, the podcast for trucking entrepreneurs. If you want to learn about the trucking industry from the business side of things, you're in the right place. Every week, I interview the people who are making it happen on a daily basis. I get them to share their successes, their failures, and sometimes even their secrets. The goal is to show you how you too can create financial freedom in the booming trucking industry. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. It's not linear. And by linear, I mean the faster you go, the worse you are. That's not what the data shows. It's bathtub shaped. The slower you go and the faster you go, the worse you are. But there's a sweet spot. <laughs> yeah. it's your, it's, and it's called your average road speed. It's when you deviate from your typical running speed that problems happen. Turn my mic up. For you. Take there. Yeah, yeah, uh. On the road to the riches, life takes a toll like bridges. Good friends become foes and snitches. Better watch who knows in your business. All right, Hustle Fam, Hustle Fam, we are back with another amazing episode. And this one is a special one, y'all. I got my good friend, Dean Croak. He is DAT's principal analyst. Did I say that correct, Dean? You did. That'll work. People call me a lot of things, but that works. <laughs> gotcha. We, we won't get into the other things they call you, but we'll, we'll stick with principal analyst. So for, for the OG listeners, you guys may remember Dean from, man, it's been like maybe a year or a year and a mm-hmm. half or so, yeah, at least. At least uh, you know, he was on the show and he just gave us tons and tons of value, tons of information on the freight, uh, freight markets and so forth and so on. He even went into how he had his own trucking company at one time. So you know, these guys are, you know, and especially Dean is boots on the ground every single day. They really know what's going on with free and with everything going on right now. I thought it was really important to bring on somebody who can, you know, speak to the smaller carriers and, and speak to what's going on in transportation and just just give us some education, man. So, Dean, you know, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be with everyone again. A lot has changed since we last spoke. Right. It was at the beginning of the pandemic, I think. or thereabouts. Yes. So. yes. Yes, We've been through a crazy freight market that's gone through uh, a very long freight cycle compared to normal cycles. So normally it's four to six months, you know, rates go up, then they come down. This one was more like 18 months. And carriers generally had a pretty good year financially last year uh, by all accounts. Now, when I say carriers, I'm talking about long-haul carriers that haul freight over 150 miles, maybe 200 miles. So not not regional dry operators that are running around Atlanta, for example, or running between, uh, you know, maybe Macon and Atlanta, for example. That, that would be more short-haul where you've got sort of dedicated round-trip rates. Ours is, our business at DAT is more longer-haul type freight. So Think about loads over 200 miles where you're running from A to B to C to D and, and back again, you know, home by the weekend. So it's more long-haul freight. Been a real roller coaster ride for carriers. And, of course, the recent increase in diesel is probably one of the largest financial shocks our industry's ever had. It's been such an acute increase in the cost of diesel. And uh, and that's why this is topical, I think, because rates have cooled right off, which, which goes against what logic would suggest as diesel prices went up you would think that rates would go up at the same time um this was like a perfect storm where we came into the new year and demand fell away for you know what we haul longer distance things quietened down in the first quarter of the year as they do every year 
you know, people get through the holidays and then things just slow down. That's that's completely normal. Import volumes slow down from overseas. You have Lunar New Year in February where the factories shut down for three weeks. So it's just a quiet quarter. But then, of course, what happened, the, the flip side of that was suddenly we had more trucks in the market than we've had before because there's a lot of new carriers entering the market. And the volumes in the spot market fell away because primarily the contract rates were substantially higher year over year. Like they're in that sort of 40 to 50 cents a mile higher. And remember, you know, there's two types of freight that we haul. One is contract freight, which is typically somewhere like 80 to 90% of all the loads are hauled on rates that are pre-negotiated maybe six months ago between the carrier and the broker and the shipper. So whereas about maybe 15 to 20% of the loads are moved on spot, which is today's rate. What's the rate today to move a truck? And of course, spot rates have been incredibly high for 18 months, and that's why it's been such an attractive market. But I think if you could think about contract and spot in this context, it might help everybody understand. Contract rates are like the climate, the long-term climate, whereas spot rates are like today's weather. Mm. That's how you should think about climate. You know, climate first weather. So if you think about the climate, you know, the the long-term rates that shippers have been paying for freight have been going up steadily for probably six quarters. So the shippers that we haul for have really been suffering from higher rates, Um, whereas, and also on the spot market, right, because there's a spot market for a shipper, even if only 10% of their loads move on the spot market, they can move at such a high rate, it can destroy their whole budget for the year. Mm. And so, so for shippers, it's a really risky proposition. Um, but because of in the pandemic, we had um, a shortage of trucks. Trucks were sitting on loading docks for longer periods of time. Shippers weren't picking the loads until trucks got there. They were holding them longer. There was, And, and don't, don't forget, one of the biggest things that we've seen that's driven the spot market is the lack of labour on the other side of the loading dock. Mm. So there was a shortage of people loading and unloading and picking and packing. So what what we heard was that it was taking longer to get loaded and unloaded. There were fewer dock doors open because there were fewer staff on the other side of the dock. So what that did is it effectively slowed down what we call the freight network. Now, when I say slowed down, it doesn't mean people are doing 65 instead of 70. What it (laughs) meant was... The average speed of the network, people are moving through all of the roads and the networks at a slower speed, at a slower average speed. Everything slows down because you're spending more time on each loading dock. I had friends of mine spend 27, 28 hours loading frozen French fries in Presque Isle, Maine, because there was a shortage in Japan because McDonald's ran out of French fries. And, and it's been like that for 18 months. You, all of these examples pop up where carriers are spending way too much time on loading docks. So Fast forward to this year, and, and pe- there's more people coming back to the to the workforce as government assistance sort of waned away last September. People came back to work. Um, and what that did is it, it meant that there was the amount of time truckers were spending on docks decrease and the velocity of trucks through the entire network sped up. So, you know, that, that's not linear speed. It's just been right. trucks started to flow more freely. So now... That's one thing that's happened because what I'm trying to get to here is why did the market turn so quickly in the first part of this year? Why did rates drop so fast? Got you. Yes. That's what's got everybody thinking. And it's the biggest question I've been struggling with, and it's multifaceted. So think about 
so docks, the dock time and the dwell time has improved and there's more trucks coming through. There are more trucks moving through the network at a quicker speed. And you've also got more trucks coming into the industry still. So you've got a lot more carriers joining the industry. Right. So we've got a lot of capacity now. And then you think about the other side of that equation was the shippers, because of all the supply chain disruptions and the shortages of parts like uh, uh, fuel filters, um, bunk heaters, lights, like so there's a shortage of everything we almost need in trucking every day, but it applies to everybody. You and I at home, there's a shortage of roller doors. There's a shortage of almost everything. Baby formula was the latest one. So when you think about shortages, what shippers were doing up until fuel skyrocketed, they were sending whatever freight they had whenever they could get a truck last year. Okay. So that meant a lot of lot of part loads, a lot of LTL, less than truck load, and a lot of part loads were being shipped. Now, again, I'm quoting what our large shippers are telling us. So they were sending whatever they could whenever they could get a truck because capacity was so tight. So think about the climate and the weather. Well, in that scenario, the weather, to get that load moved, those rates go through the roof because there's a lot of demand for those trucks to move loads quickly. So what we had, and this is, this is a fascinating scenario, we had the same volume roughly last year as the year before, but it was moving on more trucks because it was right. more part loads. Right. So fast forward to February, fuel surcharge goes through the roof, goes from 33 cents a mile a year ago to 72 cents a mile, and suddenly shippers are getting hit with this enormous increase in the fuel excise that they have to pay. So then they said, whoa, hold on, we need to rein in our transport costs Let's stop sending part loads and let's send, let's consolidate our 53 foot vans. So now you've got the same volume moving on fewer trucks. Mm. So you follow the logic? So, yeah, one yeah. of the shippers, what, we, what got us onto this was one of the shippers said, We think demand for trucking's been inflated. And it's inflated because we've been sending the same volume, but on more trucks, fewer, fewer part, fewer, more part loads. So right. now you've got this massive swing the other direction. And so you've got more trucks moving quickly through the network, and then you've got fewer truck loads moving the same volume. And next thing, you've got a massive implosion in spot rates because the demand for truck loads fell right away at almost the same time that contract rates coming into routing guides that shippers send out to all the large carriers through their software systems. Those rates were going up. They're still going up. So contract rates are still increasing, albeit at a slower rate. Whereas spot rates are dropping, and and this is this is the difference between the you know the climate, the long term climate in the trucking industry is still incredibly healthy, incredibly profitable. Carriers had a really good year last year generally, so those out those carriers out there in the spot market might be thinking, well, I I probably should go and start working for a large contract carrier where the rates are higher mm-hmm. than the spot market. Yep. So that's one thing that we see carriers doing. Others have made so much money selling off a truck or a trailer. They're just sitting it out. You know, they're going to ride out high diesel prices because we just saw yesterday OPEC have agreed to increase production. That could mean, you know, diesel prices come back down pretty quickly because the world is still trying to figure out how do we replace the 6 million barrels a day of oil that Russia produces. So lots of things going on globally that are affecting us. But just here in the US in the last five or six months, we've had a massive change in our industry. And and the people that are the most affected by this, obviously shippers have been suffering because they're paying more 
and and shippers that make stuff that we haul haven't been able to pass that on to you and I as much as they'd like to. Now, we're all paying more at the supermarket, right? We're paying a lot more because of inflation. But for for a big manufacturer, it's hard to pass that on to consumers, to pass all of it on. So when you listen to the earnings calls of the big manufacturers like Target and Walmart and Lowe's and all the big retailers, their their first quarter earnings calls in the last couple of weeks were not good. All right, guys. Truck and Hustle has now partnered with Transpo CFO, powered by Venning. Transpo CFO offers a streamlined monthly subscription for businesses to consolidate their accounting, payroll, and tax needs into one flat monthly rate, saving businesses a tremendous amount of time and money while making their financial operations much smoother for the long road ahead. Check out Transpo CFO in the description below and tell them Truck and Hustle sent you. Now let's get back to the show. So they, they've they've the, the transportation costs are really hurting a lot of the big carriers, we, big companies we haul for. So there's that going on. And then when you look at the profitability impact on the small carrier, and I think this is where the, the climate and the weather helps, if, you, if you're thinking about the rates in the contract market, there's a mechanism that large carriers have where they tack on the fuel surcharge. So if, if you think about fuel at about 80 cents a mile, the fuel surcharge is about 70 cents a mile that a shipper pays you on top of the rate. So you don't all, you don't ever get full cost recovery of the of the fuel surcharge. You always got to cover that yourself. But right. if you're in the spot market and you're working with a broker, he's going to give you an all-in rate. There is no separation of the line haul rate and the fuel surcharge. So when you get that all-in rate, the assumption is that you know what your operating costs are and you know that $2 a mile is not enough to run your truck. And I, and I say that because line haul rates are down $0.73 cents a mile for dry van this year so far. So they're down, they're down from about $2.80 down to about $2.05 today. Now, $2.05 is about what it costs me to run a truck and trailer. <laughs> right, right. Including paying myself a $70,000 a year wage, right? So it's, it's everything yeah. included, right? So rates have dropped dramatically, but if I don't know my operating costs, how do I know that $2.05 or $2.20 or $2.30 is a good rate? And and I think one of the things for anybody out there that's interested in knowing how to be viable long-term, my advice is try and keep fuel as a percentage of revenue at around 25%. So, and you could do this in the seat of your truck right now. You can divide, you can calculate how much fuel you're going to need at $5.70 a gallon at six and a half miles per gallon over a thousand miles. You can figure out what it's going to cost you in diesel, divide that into the revenue you're getting for the load. And if it's not 25%, then, then you've got to figure out, well, how do I keep my long-term average at 25%? Now, I, and I'm getting to a point here that's really important. I love um, this. Keep on going. This is, yeah, so, so and I know some loads will be 30% because you've got a lot of headwind and you've got an ugly flatbed load on there that's dragging a lot of wind and you're climbing through the mountains. So your fuel as a percentage of revenue will be higher. There right. are other days where you'll have a really light load of pipes plastic pipes or a van that's half full and it'll be 20% of revenue. But over the long term, if you can keep fuel at 25% of revenue, you'll be in really good shape financially. So that's your long-term average. Why I'm getting to this point is this determines, I think, what happens in the next few months for a lot of carriers because today, if you think 25% is the baseline, today it's 33% average. 
So fuel is about 33% of average of, of fuel of revenue in DAT's freight network. That's what that's what it's running at for carriers in the spot market. You can't survive at 33% long term right. because 25 is where your average has got to be. Now, so go back to 2016, which is our last freight recession, it was about 23%. So we, we didn't we didn't lose a lot of carriers in sixteen, but in nineteen we did. In twenty nineteen we had a record number of bankruptcies in this very quarter in two thousand and nineteen. Fuel as a percentage of revenue hit twenty seven percent for about six months. So as we sit here today at the start of June, it's sitting around thirty three percent. It's been like that for about six weeks. So and this this is the big concern everyone's got is how long can we sustain high fuel prices if we're not getting all of the fuel surcharge in our all-in rate from brokers? So for those listening, if they're in the contract market or providing power only, there's probably a good chance they're getting most of the cost of diesel covered through the fuel surcharge. But yeah. for those that aren't, this is a really risky proposition because we, we think rates have bottomed out this week because they've been dropping for four months straight. Uh, But we think they've bottomed out in the last two weeks. So there's a chance rates have have reached their floor. Now, so if it's it's costing me, let's say it's costing me $2.05 per mile, and this is what carriers are doing, of course, that includes a $70,000 salary, right, at $2.05 a mile. I'm leasing a truck, financing a truck, running 100,000 miles a year, paying all the costs for diesel, et cetera, et cetera. But if I take away that $70,000 a year, salary, I would be making the same profit margin I was this time last year, but mm. I'm earning nothing, no wage. Right. So and this is a really good example of how much it's hurt carriers. This time a year ago, rates were uh, $2.34. Today, they're two oh five, so they've dropped 30 cents. That's the line haul rate, excluding fuel. Diesel was three twenty two. It's five fifty seven today. It's up $2.35. Right, so that's how much diesel has risen in a year, and what that's done to running an you know an owner operator running one truck, and these are average numbers. Remember, it's different for everybody, but average. I would have been making forty cents a mile profit last year. Now I'm making, now I'm losing twenty six cents a mile. Now that's my gross profit. I'm still making seventy thousand dollars salary, but my gross profit margin, I'm I'm not making a profit anymore because diesel is so high and rates have come down. And that's why it's absolutely critical that when you negotiate rates with your broker or your shipper, that you've got to A, understand what your base operating costs are and B, add on the fuel surcharge, which every shipper you know, should be paying for the, for the freight. So that's why, um, and, and I mention this because we don't know how long diesel is going to stay high. Uh, nobody knows the answer to that question right at this point in time. But for the last six months of last year, fuel was relatively low and rates were very high. So that allowed a very healthy profit margin for about six to eight months. And that's why carriers are telling us that they can ride it out. They had a pretty good year financially, paid off some debt, uh, bought some new equipment, you know, traded up, did some different things, maybe bought a, you know, a new boat and a car and had a vacation, did all those things they should be doing. So that's why I'm fairly positive about this year, even though rates have dropped, I think carriers are better equipped to handle this market than ever before. Um, the experts in the industry that do all the books for the owner-operators say this last year was the most profitable year since deregulation for small carriers. 
and and this uh, this is Todd Amen at ATBS. He's got about twenty thousand owner operators on his books that he does their, their financial work for. So very good year for carriers, and so it's not all doom and gloom, despite what people might read in the press. I'm actually fairly positive about what this year looks like because the economic numbers look really good, even though you know there's inflation's high. We're still spending money, and you know trucks have got a haul. All this stuff that we continue to buy. Um, especially reefer carriers, right? Because people might not buy another TV, but they've always got to eat. So right, right. you, know, you got to haul, you got to haul, you got to haul, haul all the food. So that's kind of my my opening uh, statement, which is nah, I, 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 I love it, man. I love it. And you talked yeah. about you talked about you know carriers who went out of business in 2019. You said that that there was at yeah. record. And what was that number again? Oh, I don't know the, uh, the exact number I don't have on me. You said um, a certain I, amount of percent, though. What was the percentage? Oh, sorry. Did? It was about 27%. About 27. 20, fuel was 27% of revenue. Yeah. So it wasn't much above the average, right? Yeah. Now it's Got like it. at 33%. So if it stays at 33% for the rest of this year, there won't, there'll be a lot of people that won't be able to survive that. But I think it'll, I think it'll turn pretty quickly. And this market will rebound, you know, fairly quickly. I think the world will figure out a way to offset the oil that Russia's um, produces that we need. So, what do you, what do you think needs to happen for it to 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 correct itself? I mean, what what do you, what do you what are you um, seeing out there? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> in a bizarre way, we are exporting a lot of oil because there's demand for it overseas. We're not we're not necessarily sending every single barrel of oil we've got to New York Harbor to keep. <laughs> you know, East Coast prices down. <laughs> so right. it's kind of it's kind of bizarre. I, part of me thinks there's something else going on with why fuel prices are high. Uh, we're exporting more oil than I think we probably should. We're not making as much oil um, as we're not producing as much oil as we certainly need to. We're not producing anywhere near the oil that we have done historically. If you think about the number of drilling rigs, you know, back in that 2014-15 period, we had something like 2,000 rigs drilling for oil and gas. The fracking boom, um, it's at about 735 today. Right. But but it's up 70% in the last year. So we've added something like 300 and something rigs, drilling rigs in the last year. So we are adding more drilling rigs to get more oil out of the ground. Uh, but the problem is with, you know, a lot of the drilling that went on years ago that made us a, a net exporter of oil and not dependent on other countries, those wells aren't producing what they used to. So, you know, like you've got to drill deeper and go sideways and do all sorts of different things. So we are drilling, we are getting more oil out of the ground, but we're still dependent on other countries. Um, it, the, the problem is on the coast. Like if it's been a long time since the diesel here in New England has been more expensive than California. Hmm. And, and the problem is that a lot of our oil goes from the oil fields into the Gulf via pipeline, and then it comes via pipeline all the way through that colonial pipeline all the way to New England. Remember, it got shut down last year by the ransomware attack. So right. the colonial pipeline brings all the oil over to the East Coast. Now, there's some oil comes in by tanker from the Middle East uh, direct into New York, but most of it comes in via pipeline. So, uh, and, that, and that's why it's more expensive, right, because the cost of moving it by a pipeline takes more takes more money than if you're in the Gulf Coast, for example, where you've only got to move that oil a little distance. So that's kind of the economics of it. Um, we don't know. There's certainly a big shortage. The other problem we've got here on the East Coast, and I can talk about the East Coast because I've still got to fuel my truck up, 
Um, <laughs> in the last the last ten years, the number of refineries making diesel has has dropped by a half. So it's gone from fifteen down to about seven. So there's so even though we we are demanding we we want more fuel because we're doing more miles, there's less refineries making the fuel, and that means price can only go one direction. So that's why prices are going up. It's it's supply and demand. Some of our oil is going overseas, so that's putting a strain on our inventory levels. Our inventory levels are about half what they should be here in New England. So there's a lot of complex nuance around why fuel prices are high. But yeah. regardless, you've got to have fuel to make to make money and run your truck. You've got to really know your operating costs. You've got to negotiate hard. You've got to be a good negotiator. I think more than anything, it, forget being a good driver and steerer and backer. You have to be an incredibly good negotiator. If there's right. one thing you wanted to study and, and read about and watch YouTube videos, it's how to negotiate. How to negotiate. Yeah. yeah. To be a really good communicator. Yeah. 100%. Aside from, from rates and fuel, what are some of the other things that are impacting the small carrier? Um, yeah. There's a lot of regulatory things happening, FM, FMSCS, M, FMCSA. Yeah. Um, talk, talk about some of the things that's going on with, with clearinghouse with, um, you know, drug and alcohol testing for drivers, yeah. uh, speed limiters, all these different things that's happening regulatory wise that's impacting the small carrier as well. Yeah. Not a fan of any of that. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I, I just think there's so much, we're completely on the wrong path. Maybe we, um, we could start with, um, ELDs, right? So okay. there was some data that came out this week. A very interesting data came out by the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, NHTSA, and they publish the a report every year called the Large Crash Study Facts and Figures. So what happened, and this is this is bizarre. So remember when they bought in ELDs, they promised that accidents would go down and it'll be safer? Well, right. accidents went up. No, no surprise they went up. Of course, we predicted they'd go up. I, I did a webinar in May of 18 and said accidents are going to go up. Because people with paper logs are much safer than people are trying to be compliant to unsafe regulations. So mm. what happened? What, what was the logic behind uh, that, Dean? The, why, why did you feel they, they would they would go up? Explain that. Yeah, so with paper logs, when you, you could just draw a line for 11 hours and then another line for 10 hours off, mm -hmm. in between that, you're pulling up to sleep when you're tired and you drive when you're awake. You just, you know, you'll, you'll wait traffic out. You pull up and have a nap. Whereas with the ELD, the 14-hour clock is always going to beat you when you do that because you have a fine, you can't drive after the 14th hour from when you first started. So Correct. pulling up for a two-hour nap while traffic dies down doesn't help you. It doesn't right. help your productivity. So, it, so it keep, there's an incentive to keep rolling. And, and but, but with paper logs, generally drivers would uh, drive when they're awake, get up when they're you know done sleeping and, and do a work day, and, and the numbers would look, the timing of the numbers would look different. They would always run 11 hours and have 10 off, but the, the timing of that would be different. So you fast forward to electronic logs where it actually forces you to do things that are not how you would normally feel and sleep and rest and, and how your, alert your, you are. Your eight-hour rest break and so forth. Yeah. So you're seeing drivers pull up at eight hours in the breakdown lane because they don't want to get a violation. Right. They have a 30-minute break. They're sitting, they're sitting in a fuel island for 30 minutes. Like that drives me nuts when people sit on a fuel island for thirty minute break. Worse, not, I, I you're see you're drivers not rest either. You know, so it's really no, not really <laughs> no. And I, and I see drivers. 
they'll fuel their truck and they'll go inside and have dinner for 30 minutes and leave their truck with both pumps in the tank. Like, so there's a lot of stuff going on that this regulation has has created, a lot of unintended consequences. Um, the, the truck pulling over at the eight-hour mark because the trip planning was off or they got delayed in traffic, that's a really dangerous location to pull up, but you see it all the time. So and no surprise, accidents went up. I think, Ramal, the, the really big reason why accidents have gone up since ELDs, suddenly drivers have now got to compress this workday into a tiny 14-hour window. Right. right. So what does it make drivers do? They rush. They take yeah. chances. They drive a lot faster than they probably should normally. So this was, this make no mistake, this was never about safety. This was always about productivity because all of the fleets out there that that are highly productive and could um, and paper logs allowed you to probably run another hour a day more than the large speed limited fleets because you know if I'm running 70 and another fleet's running 65 I'm probably 40 miles ahead at the end of the day right even more if I'm running 75 like you can legally in, in 11 states right so this was always about productivity it was always about large fleets lobbying for ELDs so they could cramp the competitiveness of the smaller fleets who were largely on paper logs. But mm. the problem now is that ELDs only regulate time. They don't regulate speed. So guess what we've now got being proposed? Speed limiters for all trucks. This is part two of, of screwing down the productivity of the smaller fleets because ELDs, again, if, I'm run, if I can run 75 miles an hour and that's legal, I'm 10 miles an hour faster than the speed-limited large carrier at 65 or even less. So right. it's about productivity. And if I'm more productive, I can charge less. Correct. Right? So Correct. that's this, this, we have a normal, you just drive along the interstates and see the trucks sitting at 65 miles an hour or less in the middle lane without a CB, not looking in their mirrors. Now you want all trucks to be speed limited at the same. There is This will have car drivers losing their minds. They already <laughs> lose their minds now when they can't get past trucks. You want right. to see the accidents that are going to happen after this. Again, it's not about safety. This is one of those more cynical regulations that the industry talks about under the guise of improved safety. It's, and, and again, Ramal, this the data proves that it's it's not linear speed. Like it's not it's not how fast I go, it's how fast I go for the condition. So I've always been an advocate that it's not about speed, pure speed. It's about inappropriate speed for the conditions. Right. right so it might be other things in the consideration, like following distance and and you know so forth yeah. and so on. Like it's not the speed that's causing an accident. It's the other the other intangible things or the other other things. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, it might be okay for me to drive, you know, I think you can drive 80 out on, maybe it's 75, 80 out on the I-80 out near Winnemucca in Nevada. Right. Right? But it would be totally inappropriate to do that through a town where the, on the I-80 where there's like five or six exits and people coming on and off. You'd right. want to back off for that. Right. Um, so I think it's about how, like construction zone, right? I see some guys hammering through construction zones way too quick. So it's about how appropriate the speed is for the condition. But the second part of this is um, it's not linear. And by linear, I mean the faster you go, the worse you are. That's not what the data shows. It's bathtub shaped. The slower you go and the faster you go, the worse you are. But there's a sweet spot. <laughs> yeah. it's your, it's, and it's called your average road speed. It's when you deviate from your typical running speed that problems happen. And the data again shows 
it's slower speeds where the accidents occur, not higher speeds. So again, there's a lot of misinformation out there, but uh, you know, I've done a few million miles as a driver and I can assure you that it's not about speed. Um, you've just got to watch what other car drivers do. I mean, why would you propose speed limiters for trucks when like 85% of the accidents are caused by the car driver? Mm. Like, so why wouldn't you impose speed limits on everybody? Right. Why just trucks? So it makes, right. it makes no sense because it's it's not the truck driver that's at fault in in most of the accidents. Now, yeah, we've got to get our act together in a few areas for sure, but we're not, you know, most of us are, are very professional operators who take pride in what we do. It's everybody else around us that we've got to keep an eye on, and that's where a lot of the problems start when you have inconsistent speed because car drivers are always in a hurry, right? When you, If you watch on the roads, they're always anxious to get around. They see a truck and they've got to pull out in front of it because they are scared to death they'll get caught behind it. <laughs> so this, when you, ever you have, whenever you have traffic flowing at a different speed, you'll have problems. When traffic all flows at the same speed, everything's fine. You don't have accidents nearly as much as you do when you've got people all traveling at different speeds. Right, right, right. No, for sure. Do, do you know what, like in, in terms of the data, like how, how many accidents that they say are caused by actual speed in, 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 as it relates to just accidents in general? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure most accidents uh, are caused in ba- like by backing or, you know, di- like, yeah. you know, di- different things. It's probably not speed. It's right. probably, speed is probably one of the least cause of accidents out there. Yeah, when I've looked at, I don't have the government data here because the government data is sort of state trooper recorded level data. Like so, um, and it doesn't determine fault. So right. when the state, when you have a preventable accident where someone's injured and you get towed, it doesn't assign fault. It's just a state recorded accident. But if you look at carrier data, large carrier data, and if you look at any um, profile of any large fleet, most of their accident costs comes from just a handful of accidents. So, I, I, and it's an interesting question. I studied this data for probably the best part of my working career outside of trucking and, and studied hundreds of thousands of truck accidents for insurance companies and, and truckload carriers. And the numbers play out pretty much like this. About 80% of the cost of insurance and accidents comes from about 10% of the accidents. Okay. Right? Yeah. And those 10% of the accidents, I guess, I guess what? Mostly single vehicle lane departures. They're the big mm. ones. They're the big bad ones where people get injured and they, drivers hit cars. So the, you mentioned it. The, the most common accident in trucking fleets is low-speed backing, typically in a truck stopper or a shipper or receiver. That's yep. the most common accident, uh, are backing accidents. So, um, But the problem, though, and it, this, is the, this is a huge issue the insurance industry has laid upon the trucking industry. When you look at accident cause codes in a database, the insurance company wants you to put in a description of what happened, i.e., uh, run off road, roll over, hit bridge, uh, wrecker, hit guardrail, right? Lane departure. All, these are the cause codes they give you. Right. You won't be surprised to realize that those six or seven accidents I just described are all caused by drivers that fall asleep. Mm. Right. The, the insurance database and the loss run at the carrier records a description of what happened, not what caused it. And the if you don't cause. know what causes your accidents, you can never fix it. And that's why accidents haven't improved because some people even, some companies even ban the word fatigue being used in their insurance claims description. Right. So, so and let, me, let me expand on that because this is, this is a really important point. When, when you 
uh, if you look at road design, it's 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 designed to run water from the centre of the road. It's got a crown in the centre. So when you're in the left-hand lane, i.e. the hammer lane, and you fall asleep at the wheel and stop steering, the truck drifts at four degrees into the median. Now, that accident is called a wrecker because I had a wrecker pull me back out for $850 and I was on right. my way again. Right. right? If, I was in the, if I was in the granny lane, the right-hand lane, and I fall asleep, I drift at four degrees into a guardrail. It's called a hit guardrail in the accident database. But mm. both of those accidents were caused by a driver who fell asleep. And that's why, that's why we have such a problem understanding how dangerous the hours of service regulations are because you can be 100% compliant with hours of service and sound asleep at the wheel at the same time. Right, right. So, so there's, there's no – every driver would be shaking their head saying, of course, there's no connection between being compliant and being safe. Like the two things are not connected. And I'm really passionate about this because I've had to go to the funerals. I've had to go to funerals where drivers have died in my fleet and were compliant with their logs. Yeah. And so, so that's why I spent most of my career here in the US teaching drivers how to sleep and how to avoid that situation. There's a whole science around how to avoid that. But, and again, with paper logs, when you got tired, you could pull up and, and have a nap. Whereas yeah. with electronic logs, um, there's an incentive not to do that these days, and that's why accidents haven't increased. The data shows in the NHTSA report that accidents, fatalities involving large trucks have increased 13% last year. It's a pretty big increase in numbers. Yeah. So um, you know, it, one, one fatality is one too many, but there's, there, there's a big increase, and I think this just doesn't apply to carriers, right, truckers. Everybody on the road is having more accidents, and um, I kind of joke that, and it's probably not a joke, but everybody's working back in the office now and going back out and driving more. It's like they forgot how to drive. It's right. like people are crazy on the roads today like right. as they go back to the office. So, can, 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 uh, you, can, you speak, can you speak to that a little bit? Like how, how do we reduce driver fatigue and like kind of drivers kind of mastering their circadian rhythm and just really getting that yeah. REM sleep? And, you know, can you speak about that? Yep. So a couple of rules. Um, you've got to get at least six hours sleep every 24. doesn't have to be six hours continuous. It could be three and three or one and a half and four and a half. But you've got to get six hours continuous. Why six? Six is the same as four sleep cycles. So a sleep cycle is 90 minutes, nine zero. So every time when you go to sleep, you drift off to sleep, uh, light sleep, and then you go into deep sleep, and then you wake up through a dream. Right, so an hour and a half, you go through four or five stages of sleep, but it always ends with a dream. And your first dream is about 15 minutes. At the back end of the night, you'll dream for about an hour before you wake up, right? So if you ever right. notice that you, you feel yeah. like you're dreaming for that last six o'clock, that's what happens. So, so about 75% of your night's sleep is deep sleep. Deep sleep fixes the physical fatigue, the skin, the hair, the muscles. The REM sleep fixes the brain restores the brain, the, the concentration, the memory, the mood, the emotion. So the REM sleep fixes your brain, the deep sleep fixes your body. So to get full recovery and to get the best out of your sleep, you, you learn to sleep in cycles, not hours, because drivers will say, I'm going to have an hour. It's the worst number because an hour takes you into deep sleep. If you made that nap an hour and a half, you'd be waking up when your brain was dreaming and you can get going really easily. But if you try and wake up from deep sleep, you have what we call sleep inertia, which is where you wake up and you feel moody and groggy and lethargic and tired. So my, my best tip is um, 
sleep in cycles. So when you've got the opportunity to sleep, say to yourself, how many one and a half hour cycles can I fit in? So it could be one and a half, three, four and a half, six, seven and a half, nine, but never in between, right? Because if you if you if you go to six hours, and this and this is probably happening to you, do, you know, have you ever woken up before your alarm clock? Oh, for sure. Well, you're waking up at the end of that previous sleep cycle, and right. then you think because more sleep, more time in bed is better. You actually wake up at the next part down in deep sleep and you wake up feeling worse. So if you got out of bed at six at six hours, you'd have felt much better because you wouldn't have had that sleep inertia rattling around in your brain, which is what fatigue is. You have a headache, your eyes ache, your memory's not good, you feel moody, depressed, lethargic, have a cup of coffee, 30 minutes, you're good to go. So um, you always set your alarm clock for multiples of an hour and a half so you get full full sleep recovery from all of the brainwave patterns in each hour and a half from the sleep sleep patterns, the sleep cycles. So that's the first thing, sleep in blocks of an hour and a half. Never have a one-hour nap or it's either 20 to 30 minutes or an hour and a half. That will make the world of difference if you start to time your sleep with when, you, when you're having that dream. The second thing, and this is probably the most important thing, sleep has to be at the same time every day. And I know that's hard, but when you lock in sleep at the same time every day, um, start work at the same time every day, you lock in your sleep pattern because you can't you can't get good quality sleep if you're trying to sleep at a different time every day. So trip planning and appointment times, you really should strive for start work at the same time every single day and you'll feel a lot better. The third thing, and I'll, and I'll wrap it up with this, this is like a one and a half hour sleep <laughs> science class that I do in like five minutes. No, but the most important thing, the most important thing you've got to do each week is get two periods of night sleep. So remember the previous uh, 34-hour restart, they, they put in a regulation that they took away yep. where you had to have two periods of night between 1 and 5 a.m.? Yes, had to span, consecutive, right? consecutive right, two nights, yeah. What, what we were trying to get through was you needed to have two periods of night sleep to get rid of the sleep debt from the previous week's work. So it, mm. it takes the human brain two periods of night sleep i.e. go to bed when you're tired, wake up when you're done, do that twice, right? Yeah. By the end of the second night, the body will have dispensed all of the sleep debt from the previous week. Mm. But if you only have a 34-hour restart that covers one period of night sleep, if you've got any sleep debt left over, it accumulates to the next week. So a sleep debt is the difference between what you need and what you get. If I needed 40 and I got 30, I got a sleep debt of 10. Now, the magic is I don't need 10 extra hours of sleep on my weekend. I just need two periods of night sleep because the brain has the enormous ability to dispense the sleep debt if you have two periods of night sleep minimum every seven. But if I didn't, if I only had one night, that 10 hours I was I had last week as a debt, I start this week at plus 10. And by the end of the week, it's plus 40. And this is what grinds drivers into the ground, especially new drivers, because over the period of 90 days, the first three months, you can have, a, you can have hundreds of hours of sleep debt and, and drivers quit because they can't function. So, so two periods of night sleep every seven to get rid of the sleep debt, uh, start at the same time every day and measure sleep in cycles of an hour and a half and you will feel a lot better. I love it. That rule didn't last very long, man. What, what happened to that? It's like it's like about a year, and then they just <laughs> they changed it right, right. back. <laughs> Productivity. 
same yeah. as ELDs and same as speed limiters. It wasn't about safety. It was about productivity. Mm. It was it's nuts. Like, so it, it's it's like two worlds. There's the people that make the regulations and there's all of us out on the roads that have to live with them. And it's like, yeah. what were they thinking? Like, yeah, yeah. No, 100%. So talk about talk about drivers, man. Clearinghouse. Um, can you can you touch on that? What's going on yeah, right so again, now with the, with the workforce? Yeah, I mean that. They're, they're again. This this is under the heading of safety, and uh, it's really about trying to keep capacity tight and drivers in short supply. Um, it's also about you know trying to make our drivers healthier. But you, I look at why are drivers taking things? Like what, what is causing the substance abuse? That's the biggest question I ask, not so much what the clearinghouse is doing uh, because clearly there are some drivers taking some things that are really, really dangerous. There's no question about that. They shouldn't be doing that and shouldn't be on the roads. But I'm more interested in why. Why are you doing that? Why are you self-medicating? Excuse my dogs in the background. But no problem, no problem. I'm... Uh, why are drivers self-medicating, right? So some drivers self-medicate with alcohol and nicotine because they have sleep apnea and they can't breathe at night and they have these crushing headaches in the morning. Um, other drivers have to take, you know, heavier stimulants because they have to drive all night. Well, why are you driving all night? You know, so if you only drive all night twice a week, that's incredibly dangerous. But if you drive at night every night of the week and your sleep is always at the same time, you'll have a much lesser dependence on self-medicating. So, I, I, you know, is it depression? Um, what's causing that? A, a lot of the times, Ramal, it's going to be sleep, sleep-related. Because if you don't get good quality sleep, some of the major symptoms of poor sleep quality are things like depression and anxiety, which drives a lot of the self-medication. So, and, and I say this because, you know, my father died of his second heart attack and he was a trucker all of his life. Um but he had obstructive sleep apnea and was never diagnosed with sleep apnea because they didn't have that sort of testing in the 60s and 70s. But he self-medicated his entire life, smoked cigarettes and drank a six-pack of beer every day to knock himself out and go to sleep. Yeah. Never, never got good quality sleep but never had his breathing fixed because if once he had the breathing fixed, that would have taken, off the, taken the pressure away from the need to self-medicate because if you don't get the help, you're on this treadmill where every single day you've got to self-medicate to get yourself through. So I, I think, yes, the clearinghouse has done a good job in, in identifying the problem, but we're still doing a terrible job at helping drivers through what the cause is. Right. That's, that's, that's the thing we've got to spend more time on is the why. Like why? Why is that happening? Why do drivers need to do that? It's a hard job. That, don't get me wrong. This is a really hard job. Driving a truck is one of the hardest things I've ever, ever had to do in my life, not the steering part. It's dealing yeah. with everything else, shippers, yeah. receivers, traffic, cars brake checking me, delays on loading docks, weather, sitting in a truck stop all weekend because I can't get unloaded, you know, that sort of stuff. That's what makes it hard. That's why yeah. drivers get down. For sure. Speaking of sleep apnea, it seems like within the last, I'd say like five or six years, it, that's become extremely prevalent, man. Um, yeah. Amongst drivers, a lot of drivers can't get medical cards because of sleep apnea. Uh, and I mean, right. I, I, it's getting diagnosed a lot more, whereas I think this has been That's a problem, it. but now they're diagnosing it more. Do you, do you, yeah. do you think there's any correlation between like, like why that's the case? Like all of a sudden now everybody seems to have sleep apnea all of a sudden. It's, uh, <laughs> it's liability, right? So now it's not just any doctor. You've got to go to a doctor that's approved and they've got to sign off. You know, it's hard to get your bottom blood pressure number under 90, you know, yeah. they, you know, I, I struggle with it every year. I've got an annual DOT card. Um, it's hard work. So, yeah, for context, 
in 2004, the only question they asked you was, do you snore? Yes or no? Right. And of course, no, I don't snore. Everybody answered <laughs> no. So there was no sleep studies. Yeah. Right. So, but, but truckers were still, about 35% of truckers were still at risk of having sleep apnea, even in 2004. What's different is the actual CDL physical test is very different these days. Right. So it's a much more comprehensive test. They're more, more uh, inflexible about blood pressure. Um, they, they're very interested in things like diabetes. Um, do you smoke? Um, in particular, BMI, body mass index and neck size. You know, neck size of over 18 inches is a, is a really good sign. You've probably got trouble breathing and snoring and sleep apnea. That's why they're sending you for tests. So it's liability on those doing, that are signing off on you to drive a truck. Uh, because you might not know you've got sleep apnea. You just feel terrible all the time. Um, so it's actually doing you a favour, but I think the bigger picture is we are recording what's what's really going on now in a much better way. We've got better data. So it appears like it's more of a problem. It's always been there, right, just like it right. was with my father when there was no testing. It's always been there because yeah. the human body doesn't change much, right? We, we're pretty consistent in our behaviour and patterns. For sure. So, so for for people who are listening and 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 they're not in the industry yet, but they want to get into the into the industry, w- would you advise mm-hmm. is is now not the time to get into the trucking industry? And if now's not the time, what would you want to see before you take that leap or you decide to you know try to get into this industry? And then on the flip side, for the people who are in the industry right now, you know mm-hmm. what and they're struggling, you know, what, what should they do? You mentioned earlier about, you know, sign on with a larger carrier. Like, are, the, are these really viable options? What, what do you think should happen right now? Um, I think if I'll address the people that are thinking about joining the industry. So I think it's always a great time to earn the, earn the, uh, enter the trucking industry, provided you do a few things. One is you've got to do some sort of night class at a tech college on how to run a business, how to, how, you know, basic economics, basic financial management. So understand how to run, ha, understand how to be run the business of being in business, right? and that's very different than driving a truck. It's incredibly different. Um, the second thing is have good business partners. Line up some very good folks that can help you with finance, insurance, bookkeeping. Have a really good bookkeeper that can run a P and L every month for you or every week. That's absolutely critical. Um, the other thing is find a niche. You know, don't just think you can lease a trailer and go haul freight in the spot market because you know, rates have dropped 75 cents a mile in the last six months. So if you were thinking December was your revenue forecast at $3 a mile, well, now it's $2 a mile and suddenly you're in trouble. So again, understand understand freight cycles, understand, um, find a niche. But I think the most important thing is understand the demand for what it is you haul. So if you're in flatbed or you want to haul reefer freight, you've got to understand what's the demand for produce in the southeast. Uh, what's the demand for lumber if I'm in Medford, Oregon? You know, what's the building industry doing? We're we building more homes or less homes. Are they building? Are they drilling more holes in the ground for oil? And am I likely to get more, you know, casing and and drill pipe out of Houston to Lubbock? Right. So so you've got to understand most importantly what the demand is for what you haul. So it's absolutely critical, and that's why you've got to spend a lot less time on social media and more time reading and listening to people in the industry that you haul for. You've got to understand where those markets are going, and that applies to people that are in the business right now. So if you're, you know, if you're new to the industry, um, 
there's a good chance, and this is your first freight cycle, there's a good chance you probably pay double what a used truck would be normally. Um, that's going to be that's going to be a problem for some people when rates drop. Um, you've got to be very careful about what you buy, um, the sort of spec of the vehicle you buy. Um, used truck prices are incredibly high right now. It's probably not the time to be buying a truck. I I've always suggested to people that you've got to you've got to do at least a year driving for someone else to figure out how the industry works and how freight flows before you think about buying your own truck. That's that's always been pretty solid advice. And I assume when you say people, you know, entering that they've already been in the industry and have some experience because to have no experience and go and buy a truck and then try and buy insurance, that's really, really difficult. You know, you could pay $30,000 per truck if you've got no experience compared to the big fleets that are probably paying five to $6,000 a trucks for their drivers. So right. understanding your operating costs, um, You've also got to be a student of the industry, no matter whether you're new or been in the industry. You've got to listen to your show. You've got to listen to every single podcast, webinar you can get your ears around. Um, and, and you've got to be, you've got to study the industry. Um, and as I mentioned, study, you know, macro trends, like what's happening in the economy, uh, what's happening overseas. Like all of these things are connected and they all determine where the freight market's going. So being connected is is important. I, I see too many drivers on TikTok and Instagram. Like so, you know, that's okay. <laughs> but you gotta you gotta spend a proportion, you know, if you want to spend an hour on TikTok, give me an hour on YouTube watching uh, people, you know, some of our DAT truckers on how to use a load board. Right. You know, how right, to negotiate. Right. Like, so Give me, give me an hour if you spend an hour, if you waste an hour. So, but that's 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 really important. I, I I can never stress how important it is to understand the demand for what it is you haul. Otherwise, it's hard to negotiate if you don't mm. know that. It's really hard to negotiate. And of course, we started the show talking about being a good negotiator. So, are there any uh, niches that are interesting to you? Um. So if you if you're physically adept at it, flatbed's always very very good. Um, you know, drop deck. If you've got a drop deck trailer, machinery is always in good demand. You know, good demand. Uh, flatbed. Again, if you're in Houston, Texas, there's a lot of drill pipe and um, casing moving out to the oil fields, whether it's to North Dakota or Oklahoma or out to the you know the western Texas. So again, it it really depends on your specialty. Um, if you're a reefer carrier. Um, You've got to follow the seasons. So Georgia peaches are on, you know, in season. Um, the Bing cherry is just near Stockton. That's the peak season there this week. Uh, it'll move to the Yakima Valley very shortly up in the in, in uh, Washington State. So again, you follow the, follow the seasons. I, I've always been a big fan of the refrigerated market because it's more I can get better rates out of those regions where the seasons are in. Like so, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, growers wanted to get their Bing cherry. It's only a six-week season, but they needed to get them into the shops for last weekend's celebrations, Memorial Day. Right. So they were, you know, they were paying a premium to get those loads moved. So you've got to understand the seasons, the timing. Uh, reefer carriers always did pretty pretty well because you could always hold, hold dry, fran, dry freight when the reefer market's not pumping. Um, other markets, there's always just a lot of demand for, you know, out of the, the beef patch in the Midwest. You know, there's a, there's a lot of demand for hanging meat, frozen meat, um, pork, beef, all those sorts of things. So anywhere in the Midwest is pretty good. Flatbeds are strong in Texas. Um, and, of course, it's hurricane season. So hurricane season started this week, which means anywhere in the southeast, uh, there's going to be an incredible demand. 
the week ahead of a hurricane and the week after to get loads in and get loads out or get loads out before and get loads in after it makes landfall. Right. Um, and, of course, the you know, FEMA. FEMA. Uh, and, and so uh, in addition to reading everything, you've got to be hooked into the weather. Absolutely critical, especially from now until November in hurricane season in the southeast because FEMA is going to want to position a lot of loads ahead of a hurricane anywhere between three and five hours from where it makes landfall, which makes, you know, Alabama, Birmingham markets where they're going to stage a lot of that freight and this and ahead of a hurricane. So stay tuned to the weather would be my advice. That's probably not new news to a lot of carriers, but those <laughs> that are new in the industry, hurricane season, season is a pretty big deal in the southeast. Got you. And and then the second part of the question was for somebody struggling right now, they're in business and they, you know, they feel they need to make a change. They don't know what they're going to do. What would you advise? What should, I mean, you, we, we talked about, you know, uh, yeah. that 25% fuel, you know, like making sure they stay there. Talk about what, what, give them some advice as well. I think if I was in that position and I wasn't getting, I was getting all in rates, I'd be, if I was leasing a trailer, I'd probably let it go and, and go and work for a larger carrier, provide power only. So if you look on our load boards, there's a lot of options for power only. And uh, because one of the big trends is bigger trailer pools. So a lot of the large fleets and large shippers are building bigger trailer pools because it's more, a more, an, it's a more efficient way of using trailers and, and keeping trucks moving. So to, to circumvent this problem where you've got longer delays on loading docks, the big carriers that you could work for um, and provide power only to move their trailers around, they're building more uh, volume into their trailer pools. Um, David Jackson, the CEO of Knight Swift, was talking about it today in the press. Um, they've, they've got a lot more focus on trailers. That's why it's hard to get new trailers out of factories because there's so much demand for them because fleets and shippers are building bigger trailer pools for drop and hook. And that's where power only can give you pretty good rates and consistent work. So that's what I'd be looking to do, thinking about power only if that was an option. You know, if I had a lease trailer, I'd probably, you know, swap out if I could. Um, or if I uh, owned a trailer, you could maybe just park it if you've got it paid for and, right. and run for someone else. But that's where that's where contract rates are going to be pretty good for carriers. That's going to be a more sustained revenue source. You probably won't be making as much money as you were in the spot market last year. I, I don't know that you'll ever see that market again where things were so profitable. Um, my advice would be forget 2021. Like it's it's it was an outlier <laughs> in so many ways. It was yeah. a crazy year in the freight market. The, the best market I would advise people to compare to was 2018. Th this current freight market in 2022 looks a lot like 2018 did, whereas 2021 was just crazy in so many respects. So, again, if you're comparing this year to last year, you're going to be disappointed. Right. But if right. you compare it to 2018, we're actually doing better. And 2018 was a great year for carriers. So yeah. that's how I'd be thinking about the market right now. I think so. So a get get some financial advice. You know, go see your accountant or a good financial planner and and understand what the implications are. Do some good forecasting on much lower rates. Uh, but power only is where we see a lot of opportunity for carriers, uh, in particular that are, you know, in the spot market right now. That's where there seems to be some growth um, in volume, as opposed to sort of one way freight. You know, A to B. There's a lot of dedicated freight running back and forward between distribution centers. 
Wow. Dean Croak, man, this has been amazing. I, 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 every time, well, I can't say every time, this is the second time you've been on, but you left my jaw dropped last time and here you are again, man. So much information, so much value. You have to come back, man. I don't know why it took me so long to get you back on the show, but we got to make this like a regular thing, man. Just keep, keep us updated with what's going on. I appreciate it so much. Anytime. Happy to be on the show and helping uh, carry us out there with what little bit I, I do know about the industry. Um, for, everybody be safe out there. For sure. And I'd be remiss to also mention you guys check out DAT Load Boards. We actually do have an affiliate link. I dropped that uh, below in the show notes and on the YouTube channel. Check it out. There's uh, there's like three different links you get, uh, you know, th- a month free or whatever. There's a couple different things. Just check it out. You'll see. Yep. Um, but, you know, they are the gold standard in load boards. I remember when I first got into the industry 20 years ago, man, I, I was on DAT load board, man. It was the first load board I, I ever knew anything about. And, you know, you guys are still here, still standing, still, you know, leading the way. 43 so. years later. Yeah. It's 43 yeah. years. I, I mean, I know like, like 43 I said, when years. I, when I well, how, how, yeah, how, how long has DAT been around? So 78, I think it was when it was dial truck. Okay. Yeah, because when I first started using low boards, man, there was nothing else. It was only DAT. Like I, I didn't know any other low boards. It was like it was like the load board was like a dat, like how you call like a cotton swab a Q tip. You know what I mean? It was like yep, it, it's yep, the yep. load board dat. Yep. So um, so yeah. But Dean, I appreciate you, sir. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. me. And uh, we got to do this again, man. We'll we'll call Great. this one Cro- Croak and Hustle. all right sir thank you so much man take care hustle fam if you smell something burning it's only your desire myself and dean croak we are out if you twisted confused or stuck about trucks don't be dumb this is the place to come truck and hustle let's go